Good afternoon. Uh, last time we talked about the uh, diversity of responses to emancipation to all of the Jewish movements in the religious sphere, reform, the background to conservative Judaism, the growth of neo-orthodoxy. Today I want to talk about two uh, phenomena that I didn't have time to talk about last week. I really don't have time to talk about them in depth this week, but we'll try to at least sketch the phenomena so you'll understand the nature of what has happened over the last 200 years a little more completely. On the one hand, in addition to the Jewish responses to modernity, the Jews being offered the opportunity to be emancipated, to leave the ghetto, to come into the modern world, to be citizens, there was, of course, uh, a very dramatic non-Jewish reaction uh, among many non-Jewish reactions. That is to say, you have to understand that just as Jews had many opinions on the Jewish question, so Gentiles had many opinions. And the opinions ranged from, let's call it from the left, which were liberal opinions that said we should leave the Jews in, though nobody, even the most liberal opinions, had a good thing to say about Judaism. But the idea that you could separate Jews from their Judaism and then let Jews in as individuals, as citizens, and so on, was uh, a widely held view in certain quarters. And then you had other opinions about how Jews perhaps needed to convert to be accepted fully, and socialist opinions, and so on. We don't have time to canvas all of those, and uh, as it worked itself out in Europe, they turned out to be less powerful than the more unsavory opinions. In fairness to Europe, I think it should be said that if this lecture were being given, say, in 1907 rather than 2007, the view would have been that the liberal opinions would be the victorious opinions, that the negative opinions which were in the air following the Dreyfus trial and the uh, other phenomena I'll come back to were a kind of last gasp of medievalism. But as you and I know, that was not true, that liberalism proved itself to be uh, inadequate in Europe and that the forces on the right and the forces of anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism proved to be very powerful. Now, how did that happen? What, what is the, the forces, how did the forces come to being? First of all, uh, there is no question that the legacy of Christian anti-Judaism was enormously powerful. That is not to say, I want to stress, that is not to say that the Holocaust is a result of Christian anti-Semitism. You cannot get from Paul to Auschwitz with a lot of intervening variables. Lots of things have to happen, and they do happen. But the European consciousness, if I could use that general term, is already so deeply tinged by an anti-Jewish animus, an anti-Jewish sentiment, an anti-Jewish feeling, that even with the best will in the world, it's very hard to purge the body politic of all of its anti-Jewish feeling. When the emancipation took place and the Jews came out of the ghetto, Almost immediately, there was a negative reaction in the rise of what we call modern anti-Semitism. 
though the term anti-Semitism was not coined till 1870 by Wilhelm Marr. The first uh, reactions were in the modern nation states, especially in Germany, where the Jews were being emancipated not by local actions, but by Napoleon. When Napoleon's army swept through Germany in the middle of European states on the way to Russia, Napoleon, as a child of the Enlightenment, though he didn't like Jews personally, he ended the ghettos. And therefore, Jewish emancipation was associated in Germany with French occupation. And so it was always tinged with a negative kind of coloration. But then, more importantly, there were ideas that came to play. You all remember, I hope, the last time we talked about the emancipation, we also talked about the Enlightenment and the Haskalah, the influence of ideas on politics, and the idea that human beings are who they are by their intellect. So if all human beings are human beings by virtue of their intellect, well, Jews too then fall into the category of human beings. And if all human beings can be made into political citizens and given rights, so Jews can be made into citizens and given rights. But there was a very powerful reaction in Europe to the Enlightenment. And that movement, which all of you know, but you probably associate with artistic creativity, is called Romanticism. Right? You all have heard of Romanticism. And if you go to uh, great museums where you usually go into 19th century paintings and you look at Delacroix or you look at some of the famous uh, other romantics, you see there an artistic mood uh, of a certain kind. In poetry, it's associated with Wordsworth and Coleridge. In music, of course, you have all the great romantics. And what is the essence of the romantic idea? The essence of the romantic idea, which is a reaction to the Enlightenment, is that what makes people people is not their intellect but emotions. That the defining feature of human existence, of human personality, are emotions. Non-rational factors. The climax of this, in a sense, of course, is Freud with his ideas about the subconscious and the libido and so on. Now, if you take the romantic thesis and you look at the early romantic figures, you'll see that this begins with the notion that emotion, feelings, are deeper than ideas and that they're not universal in the sense that a person is the sum total of many feelings and emotional connections that are organic and sort of almost biological, by which I mean connections to a family, connections to a land, connections to a language, things that are sort of primordial, fundamental, basic, not negotiable, not contractual, not transformable, not transferable. And in this, uh, you have an early exponent, a famous man named Herder, who talked about the differences between peoples. Now, Herder was not an anti-Semite of a particular kind. He was actually a liberal. but. He developed the idea, or put forward the idea, that people are what they are by virtue of the group to which they belong again, the medieval idea, but in a new garb. So if you're German, you have certain feelings, certain emotions. If you're Russian, you have certain feelings. If you're French, or English, or American, or Jewish, treating Jews as a nation. And also he argued that all of these different nations have a different genius. 
again, he was not a prejudiced position. It was a different genius. So the old famous remark that God gave the metaphysical space to the Germans and the sea to the British and the French, the land, the Valerie said. But the fact is that this idea that nations are different instinctively, inherently. And therefore, you can't cross over. If you come from one stock, from one people, from one ethnic or religious group, you can't simply leave that because that's who you are. Your parents, your family, your language, your religion, all of you, all the things that define you are already primordial. Now that means that from the first, the anti-Semites grasped onto this theory and argued, you see, Jews can never be Germans. You can never be French. You can never be uh, whatever. You're a Jew. You're a Jew. Conversely, a Frenchman can't be a Jew. He's a Catholic. Uh, an Englishman is a Protestant. Now, these ideas became very, very powerful. And they were used by anti-Semites to argue against Jewish emancipation and integration. Now, you see that in various ways. I don't have time to. But for example, in the 19th century, you start to get folk tales being collected. The most famous, of course, are by the Brothers Grimm. Now, why do people collect folk tales? Not so that they can sell books to children. They, sell, they collect folk tales because they believe that in the folk tale, you have the authentic nature of a people's feelings and culture. You don't have the real German spirit in Kant and Hegel. They're intellectuals. You have the real feeling of the German people in the folk tales, who are told by peasants. And if any of you have ever read the authentic folk tales, you know why the whole German nation is Meshuggah. <laughs> right? They're sick. They're dark. They're full of blood. They're awful. They're really horrific. When Buber came to collect Jewish folk tales, Hasidic folk tales, it was the same inspiration. Buber was something of a romantic. The idea of feelings were important to Buber more than intellect. And anybody who's followed his philosophical arguments will see they're not very sound. He's not a, really an intellect. The fact is that all of these phenomena of national dictionaries, why do you have a national dictionary? Because you trace the etymology of words. You see how words, language, or again, the most famous romantic of the 19th century is whom, artistically? First of all, Beethoven is not really a romantic, only by some definitions. Wagner, good. Why is Wagner the great romantic? German pre-Germanic, right? That is say, Wagner is the great hero. And you all know Hitler loves Wagner. Uh, Bayreuth, why? Because Wagner celebrates the Norsemen as the real Germans before they were tainted by Jewish conscience. They're really heroic men who go out and conquer the world without uh, any kind of feelings of morality and worry for the other and so on. Now, these ideas soon allied themselves with nationalist ideas, nationalist politics. And so you started to get, in Germany, uh, a significant, I'll just call it a significant anti-Jewish movement, almost from the... Napoleonic period, that means the first decade of the 19th century all the way up to the end of the 19th century. Nationalism and Romanticism form a very powerful brew. For example, in 1881 already, Bismarck has a group that comes to him with a petition, and the petition is by the League of Anti-Semites. This was an organized sort of pack, you might say in American terms, right? And they said that they had 250,000 signatures that were in favor of the disemancipation of Jews. Remember, Jews in Germany were only emancipated in 1870. By emancipated, I mean given rights to vote, citizenship. 
Within 10 years, 250,000 people. Now, I don't guarantee all those signatures. It was probably like Chicago, where they tell you to vote early and often, you know. But the fact is that you have here a movement that is pushing against modernity, pushing against emancipation, pushing against making Jews full members of society. Now, these forces periodically had moments of strength, and then they waned. And there's no doubt that in the movement of the 19th century, in the struggle between the liberal forces and the reactionary forces, the anti-Semitic forces, as a century, judged as a century, the liberal forces had the upper hand. People did think that liberal forces and a kind of Hegelian dialectic of upward and upward would always be the case. There were moments when it was called into question. Probably the most famous was in 1893, the Dreyfus trial, which you all know about. And Dreyfus was put on trial and chosen as the scapegoat because he was a Jew. But that, too, ended in a victory for the liberal forces. Remember the IQs, and they showed that Estahazi, a French aristocrat, had been the traitor. Dreyfus was not the traitor. And the dry facades won, in effect, at the end of the 19th century. And if you, therefore, took the temperature, as I said a moment ago, you would think that the 20th century would be an even better century, an even more optimistic century, an even uh, more hopeful Jewish century. But it wasn't, and it wasn't because there were other forces that were festering underground, coming to the surface to reinforce the anti-Semitism that had been discredited. And of course, the most consequential was the notion of racism, racial anti-Semitism. Now, this had a power, not apparent at first, but a power that Romanticism and nationalism did not have. And the reason it had a power is that it made an appeal to science. It said, this is a fact. This is not an opinion. This is something about the nature of existence, whether we like it or not. This is the way the world is organized. And the world is organized by a racial principle, that people are not who they are by virtue of sort of a romantic attachments, by feelings of that kind, but people are who they are by their bloodlines. The genetic inheritance that you have, whatever it might be, is the decisive force in life. And that in two senses. It's the decisive force in your personal life. So if you have parents who are six foot three and blonde, you'll be six foot three and blonde. If you have parents who are five foot three and dark, you'll be five foot three and dark. But even more consequentially, it is the force that defines the movement of history. Race is not really just biology for the theorists, for the anti-Semitic racists. It's not a matter of how you look only. Race is the value, is the conduit of value. Race is the agency which carries values, like aesthetic values, moral values, theological values, political values. So race defines the course of history. Race defines the flow of national movements. Race defines the ups and downs of the whole world's order. And the way it works simply is that there are, in all races, forces at work. And when those forces are pure, they are uh, creative and powerful. And you see that in history. You have a pure race. And the theory goes back to a man named Gobineau, Count Arthur Gobineau, a French aristocrat who was trying to explain how it was that the French aristocrats were no longer relevant. 
And he said, take a look at the, I don't know, take the Babylonians. They were energetic and powerful and they conquer the world. But then what happens in the Babylonian Empire? They have sex with local women. So the next generation is no longer pure. So along come the Persians, and they repeat, right? So all these national empires are the same pattern. People are pure and powerful and energetic. Then they conquer a whole empire and they miscegenate. The miscegenated peoples are always less powerful because they're mixed races, so they become prey to the next people. Well, in the course of the history of Europe, everybody's miscegenated except two groups, according to the racial anti-Semites. The first group that didn't miscegenate are the Jews. Why didn't the Jews? Do all of you know what miscegenation is? Okay. So uh, the Jews didn't miscegenate because Jewish law was against intermarriage, against sexual relations. And the church also put Jews in ghettos, and it was hard to fornicate through the walls. <laughs> so the, that, that's one side. On the other side, you have the Germanic peoples. The Germanic peoples, they were the barbarians on the other side of the Roman Empire. So they, didn't, they may have come down and had sexual relations with women they raped in Rome, but they went back to Rome, went home and they left the women in Rome. So the Aryan barbarians never had empire, right? They weren't like the Spanish Empire in the New World. They weren't like the French. They weren't like the British. There was no empire. It was only in the 19th century that the Germans became a nation. They unified under Bismarck, and they now started to feel their power. And they were, therefore, the only pure nation left in Europe, the Aryans in Germany and Austria and the Jews. So what is the, the uh, consequence? The consequence is that Europe is now caught up in a fundamental world-decisive struggle between Jews and Aryans. Now, if you have to remember, if everything you are not only personally, but collectively, is defined by race, then the situation goes something like this. Jews are dark, short, and ugly, right? You all know the stereotypes you see in Nazi literature. Even though, actually, in the 1920s, there was a, a census done in Middle Europe. More Jews had blonde hair than Christians. A very curious thing. There were a lot of Aryan milkmen who had visited. <laughs> the fact is that Jews not only look ugly, but they're ugly inside. That means we're disloyal politically. We're disloyal sexually. We exploit the Gentiles. We're pimps. We go in brothels. All the famous rhetoric of Hitler about the Weimar years. We spread syphilis, an old charge. You know, in Chicago not long ago, the doctors said, uh, black doctors said Jews spread AIDS. And uh, Mrs. Arafat, the shoe of Arafat, remember when Hillary was there and she said how Jews were poisoning Palestinians with AIDS and Hillary didn't say anything? Uh, I guess you had on mind on Monica, but the fact is that the, the reality is that this idea of Jews as spreading disease, being politically disloyal, culturally uncreative, we're always parasitic. The Jews aren't artistic, we're the critics. We say how bad other people's work is. We don't do anything creative. We're always parasites. We live on usury, the labor of others. We're not workers. We're sick. We're degenerate. On the other hand, there are the good people. The good people are the Aryans. The Aryans, of course, are beautiful, according to the theory. And actually, even in Germany, if you go to Germany, you'll see churches that were built in the Nazi period where Hitler has blonde hair. The fact is true. The fact is that the Aryans are not only beautiful physically, right, tall, supposedly, with a special long head, according to the theory. Jews have a round head, according to the theory. But 
The fact is that they're also loyal politically. They're willing to sacrifice for the state. They're sexually licit. They don't have all the kinds of terrible things we do sexually. They don't steal from others. They don't charge usury. They work for an honest day. They're right. So modernity has corrupted all of that. But those are the real Germans. That's why in the Nuremberg films, if you ever watch the Lenny Riefenthal. Uh, Nuremberg rallies, you've probably all seen those famous uh, films. You'll notice that riding around at Nuremberg are men and dressed as knights, medieval knights, before the Jews came and took over society and corrupted it. Now, if, if you are what you are by virtue of your genetics, right, if genetics, bi uh, biology is destiny, and the Jews are parasites, by definition, parasites. And you can't help being a parasite. We don't want to be parasites. We can't help it. That's who we are, right? That's who we are. Like mosquitoes can't live without sucking your blood. We can't live without sucking the blood of the Goyim. So the, in self-defense, in self-defense, you have only one option, and that's to murder the Jews. So the final solution to the Jewish question, remember we talked about various options, right? How to deal with the Jewish question. Well, this now, Hitler says, the final solution, the Enlos and the Judenfrage in Europa, is to kill the Jews, because now he understands what the real issue is. The real issue is not cultural. You can't change Jews into you know, something else. It's not that you can make them citizens and think you've solved the problem, or you can make them educated in Western languages and give them a Brooks Brothers suit and a Harvard degree and say, OK. You, it just means that they use their Harvard degree and their business suit to take advantage of you in new ways. So you can't ever deal with the Jews in an honest way. You can only self-defend like you do against the cancer and murder them, the way an oncologist tears out the cancer. Now, that's the one side of modernity, right? Now, of course, I summarize, but that's something you need to understand. Anti-Semitism grows in this environment until it metastasizes, to use a word that Hitler would have used about his own description, because he liked biological language, uh, that the Jews have now become the great threat. And you've all seen those Nazi pictures of the octopus with his arm on their stuma around the globe, right? That he's, he's strangling the globe. So in self-defense, they build Auschwitz and Treblinka because we're so dangerous. And we can't help being dangerous. That's who we are. We're parasites. We live on the healthy tissue. On the other hand, I like to end on a happier note. And that, of course, is the Jewish uh, antidote, in one sense, the Jewish reply to all of these European conundrums. It was the one movement that uh, had the wisdom, really the prescience, to see that despite the liberal sentiments and the liberal impulse in many quarters and the majority of European politics, that there was something fundamental about European life, about the consciousness of European civilization that would not allow it to really integrate the Jew on a permanent basis. And that, of course, is Zionism. Now, to understand Zionism, which is a rather complicated business. You know the old definition of Zionism, one Jew collecting money from a second Jew to send a third Jew to Israel, right? <laughs> That's, uh, today it's not accurate. It would be one fundamentalist Christian raising money from a second fundamentalist Christian to send a Jew to Israel. And, uh, we play a role in their eschatological uh, drama that we have to go back for the Messiah to come. Now, I want to make a couple of uh, preliminary denials or I ask you to make them with me, demurrals. The first is, and this is an important issue, which I don't have time to talk about, but 
those of you who know something about Zionism and know something about the discussion of Zionism will know it was often said that Zionism is essentially only modern nationalism in a Jewish garb, right? So in the 19th century, it's a century of nationalism. The empire, the Franco, uh, the uh, Austro-Hungarian empire collapses, and you get Austria, Hungary, Czechoslovakia. The Ottoman empire will collapse, and you'll get all the states of the Middle East. So we have our nationalism was the great religion of the 19th century. And there are many uh, historians who take that view. And my late friend, may rest in peace, uh, Arthur Hertzberg, who was a very great figure, some of you may know his name, who produced, without a doubt, still probably the most influential book on the history of Zionism, widely read on college campuses, edu adult education courses, called Zionism. Uh, it's a reader of uh, original sources and uh, a long introduction by Arthur. And you may know, Arthur was a, was a lifelong Zionist on the left. He, uh, to almost the day he died, he kept publishing pieces in the New York Review of Books. Uh, he was the, a very influential conservative rabbi of uh, very considerable intellect, uh, surprisingly clever, and uh, came from a Hasidic family. His father was a Hasidic rabbi in Baltimore. Arthur took the view, this view, and others have followed him, that it's nationalism. But I would put it to you that there's certainly nationalism, but it's not just nationalism, that the Jewish connection to the land of Israel is not nationalist in the modern sense, right? That there's been this long theological connection, this instinct of not only the land, but of the Jewish people as a people, some kind of connectedness, which is also connectedness to the land. And you see this by the Aliyah that long predates Zionism, right? The Aliyah of the... the uh, Followers of the Vilna Gaon in uh, 1808 and 1809, the Aliyah of the Baal Shem Tov's disciples in the uh, 1780s and 1790s, the whole movement uh, connected with the Ramban in the 1260s, Ram Nachmanides. Uh, so there's something deep in an artfilot, right? Every prayer mentions Jerusalem. It's a halacha. Every public prayer has to mention Yerushalayim. So there's something very deep, and that instinct was not unimportant because when Herzl wanted to go to Uganda, the, Jew, the majority of the Jewish people who knew better than Herzl about Jewish things, because Herzl was very assimilated, said, we don't say every year next year in Uganda, right? So they forestalled that movement. The fact is, it's not just nationalism, though it's certainly a nationalist movement. And secondly, and equally important, we mustn't make the mistake that it's just a reaction to anti-Semitism. Let's say a negative, it's a kind of a negative response to a negative phenomenon. We were responding to the negativity. There's nothing positive and internal and coherent about our own uh, national identity. That it is true that over the last hundred years, anti-Semitism has been the spur, the primary force, unfortunately. And if that were the only reason, that would be sufficient to save Jewish lives. But the fact is, there has always been a positive aspect of going to restore not only the land, but somehow to revivify the soul of the Jewish people. Now, Zionism, of course, in some way seemed absurd to most Jews. And that's why most Jews, all of your predecessors, your parents, your grandparents, came to America, including mine, rather than go to the land of Israel, because Israel seemed absurd to most people, not only to Jews. And it seemed absurd for a number of reasons. First of all, the world was going from villages and cities, and Zionists were telling us to go to small villages in the land of Israel, which was underdeveloped, right? 
Secondly, the world was moving from east to west. All the Jews were coming from Russia and Poland and Czechoslovakia. And Zionism was telling the Jews, no, go back to the east. <laughs> go, go to the land of Israel. And also the world, very importantly, was moving from agriculture and a medieval economy to technology and the city. And the Zionists were preaching, build kibbutzim and agricultural settlements. So it seemed a contradictory, counterintuitive kind of phenomenon. But the fact is that the Zionists, for all of their uh, unusual advice, saw very clearly something that was very profound. Now, I don't know, and I, I would like to say it's not true, and that there are exceptions. But the Zionist analysis, certainly regarding Europe, was true, which is that Europe was incapable, absolutely incapable, of ridding itself of its anti-Semitic character that somehow deep in the neshama of Europe was an anti-Semitism that could not be flushed out, could not be purged. And this is one of the premises of classical Zionism, which is called the eternality of exilic anti-Semitism. The eternality of exilic anti-Semitism. That means when you're in the exile, there's one thing you can be sure of, there will be anti-Semitism. Now, the Zionist analysis is that that is always the case everywhere. Whether that's true or not, that's why I say I want to be cautious, because you have to study lots of cases, and the most important case that will be a test of that principle is America, where we now have the biggest community the Jewish world has ever seen, and also you just look around you, uh, the most prosperous. Whether that is a universal truth, but certainly for the Zionists, that was a universal truth, which was certainly true about Europe. Galut was anti-Semitism. Secondly, the Zionists, depending on how they weighed up the equation, were aware that there were really two problems, not one. And that goes to this issue again of the fact that it's not just a nationalist movement. The two problems that Zionism confronts are, one, the problem of the Jews. That's how it was known in Jewish, uh, in Zionist literature, the problem of the Jews. What's the problem of the Jews? The problem of the Jews is anti-Semitism, right? That's what we mean. We talk about the Judenfrage, the problem of the Jews, the Jewish problem. That's anti-Semitism. And then anti-Semitism needs a response, and the response is Zionism. The second problem, however, that's not always appreciated, but the Zionist thinkers from the first understood it, and then it became a major plank in Zionist history, was the problem of Judaism. The problem of Judaism is different than the problem of the Jews. If Europe would allow all the Jews to assimilate, acculturate, enter the mainstream without a backlash, that would solve the problem of the Jews, right? That no anti-Semitism, no Jewish problem. But the problem of Judaism would then only be exacerbated. What's the problem of Judaism? The problem of Judaism is the denial of the vitality of Jewish culture and the continuing evisceration of Jewish culture. So that Judaism, rather than being a powerful spiritual resource, becomes an increasingly weak religious and spiritual resource. And therefore, Zionism's role is not only, or even primarily for some Zionists, like Acharam, to save the Jewish people. The purpose of Zionism is first and foremost to save Judaism, to save the religious cultural heritage of the Jewish people to recreate the Hebrew language, to recreate Hebrew literature, to recreate Hebrew spirituality, creativity, all of the things 
that in the eyes of Zionists of this culture, what are called cultural Zionists, is being lost uh, in modernity. Thirdly, I want to stress something that the Zionists felt very strongly about, that Zionism was an honorable solution for both Jews and Gentiles. That is to say, the Zionists said, in some way or other, there's got to be a solution to the Jewish question. In Europe, there can't be an honorable solution because of the eternality of anti-Semitism. They just can't provide a really satisfactory answer. So we have to do something that allows the Gentile majority to do an honorable thing and allows us to do an honorable thing, not craving and always going around with our hands, our hat in our hands begging for uh, some kind of help. By going out of Europe and creating an independent or an autonomous Jewish majoritarian culture, we will be honorable. The Gentiles will support us, so that will be honorable. They won't have to murder us. Instead of Auschwitz, they'll let us be free somewhere else. They'll be happy. We won't be there, but it'll be honorable instead of dishonorable. And on the other hand, for the Jews, it will be honorable. Instead of going begging, give us a handout, be nice to us, we'll have some pride and we'll say to the Europeans, we're your equals now as a, as a nation, as a state. Let's negotiate as people do with each other, respect each other, and the like. Now, both of these things, I want to stress, both of these things were seen, and this is what makes it Zionism, were seen as national in character. That is to say, these are not individual problems. A Jew cannot solve the problem of anti-Semitism individually. He can leave the Jewish people, but that doesn't solve the problem of anti-Semitism. And the national problem of creating a culture, of course, you can be perfectly creative yourself. You can write Hebrew poetry. The famous story of a young Hebrew poet came to Zuntz, the great father of the Wissenschaft. And Zuntz said to him, what do you do? And he said, I'm a Hebrew poet. And Zuntz said to him, what century did you live in? <laughs> right? So the fact is, the solution to these problems are national, collective. It's the Jewish people that are in trouble with anti-Semitism. It's the Jewish people that are at risk by Auschwitz. It's Judaism that's at risk in modernity. Now, these uh, ideas, these forces, start to agitate in 19th century Europe, initially in religious circles, interestingly, in religious circles, people who associate them with messianic dreams of the return to the land of Israel, the re, even the reestablishment of the temple, the reoffering of sacrifices. Perhaps the most famous figure is uh, Tzvi Hirsch Kalischer, died in 1874. But you have other religious figures, too, who have the religious impulse uh, at their center. Even in some way, Moses Montefiore, whose name I assume everybody knows. When you go to Yerushalayim, one of the things they always take you to is Montefiore's windmill, which is in Yemin Moshe which he created to give Jews in Jerusalem some income outside the old city. And of course, that certainly was very powerful and the most important figure, who's uh, usually skipped over. The most important figure, of course, is Baron Herth, uh, Rothschild, Edmund de Rothschild, who was in the 19th century known as Ovi de Yishuv, the father of the Yishuv, the father of Jewish settlement, who in the 19th century, I mean, it's an amazing sum of money, spent $5 million, roughly, to buy Jews' land in the land of Israel. $5 million in, 19, in 1890, right, is today, I don't know how many hundreds of uh, billions it would be, right? So that the religious impulse was basic. But then there were two other thinkers, primordial thinkers of great importance, who were not religious, 
And they're the beginning, really, of what we think of as political Zionism. Right? Montefiore is not political, and certainly Kalish is not political. They don't think of political terms, of nas modern national terms, in terms of sovereignty, in terms of negotiating with the nations, uh, belonging to international agreements. The two thinkers that I mentioned, but because of the time factor I just literally mentioned, are, of course, Moses Hess. Anybody know who Moses Hess is? Anybody ever hear of Moses Hess? It's not Hess who owns the New York Jets and passed away, or Hess Gasoline. Do you have Hess Gasoline on the West Coast? No? Only in civilization we have it. So the fact is that Moses Hess was a very, very famous figure. Was obviously not so famous. Uh, Moses Hess uh, was called the Red Rabbi, and he was Karl Marx's teacher of socialism. And he wrote a famous book early in life. He was a Jew. Early in life, he became a socialist and one of the fathers of socialism and communism, very famous thinker. But he encountered anti-Semitism among socialists. Today, we have the same problem again with all the anti-Semitism among liberals on the left. Now, the fact is, what did he say? He said, obviously, socialism doesn't eradicate anti-Semitism. You can have socialist anti-Semites. And so he started to talk about the need for a Jewish state where it would be socialist as well as Jewish. And he wrote a famous book on the subject called Rome and Jerusalem. Very famous figure, Moses Hess. And in fact, the impulse on the left largely comes from Moses Hess. You know, the history of Israel is largely on the left until Begin uh, came to power. The second figure that uh, I need to mention, because he's more central to the story, of course, is Pinsker. Leib Pinsker was a very important figure in Russia. Now, I stress in Russia for this reason. When people tell the story of Zionism, they usually concentrate on Herzl. And you all know Herzl lived in Vienna, and he came to cover the Dreyfus trial, and then he started the modern what we call the modern political Zionist movement. But Pinsker is a crucial figure. Pinsker comes to us from Odessa. Odessa had a big Jewish community, very acculturated Jewish community. And he's a very interesting figure. Pinsker was raised in a non-traditional home already. His father was an acculturated figure. He was acculturated. He had a very good education for his day. But the one thing he didn't study were Jewish things or Hebrew. He knew German. He knew French. He knew Russian. He was a real intellectual. And then as a young man, he decided to follow a legal career. And he got a, a, a law degree. And then he was unhappy as a lawyer, and so he became a physician. And he joined all the most advanced cultural uh, societies of his day, including a society that, for the promotion of the acculturation of the Jews. That was his solution to the Jewish question in Russia, acculturation. But then something very important happened. In 1870, you start to get the pogroms. In 1881, you start to get the vast wave, the big wave of pogroms that culminates eventually in Kishinev in 1903. When he saw the wave of pogroms, he came to the assumption or to the conclusion that the problem of the Jews could not be solved in Russia. And he said, you know, the Russians want us to leave anyway, <laughs> right? They're always telling us to emigrate. Count Pleva, who was the foreign minister, made a famous remark. He said, we're going to solve the Jewish question in Russia this way. One-third will emigrate, one-third will be murdered, and one-third will convert. That was Pleva's. Uh, he was the foreign minister of Russia in the 1880s. So Pinska said they want us to leave. They hate us. The pogroms are evidence that they can't assimilate us, that assimilation is a dead option. And as a result, 
Pinska wrote a famous book called Auto-Emancipation. He was not allowed to publish it in Russia. He published it in Middle Europe. And this was the first great modern Zionist book, Auto, Auto-Emancipation. That means we have to liberate ourselves. We can't wait for the Gentiles to do us a favor, to give us rights or not give us rights, give us tzedakah, not give us tzedakah. We have to emancipate ourselves. The second thing he said, and this goes to repeat what I said a moment ago, the problem is a national problem. It has to be tackled on his nationalist uh, line. And it was his book that drew on the earlier inspirations of Kalashev and then, of course, of Moilova, the great uh, head of Mizrahi from Bialystok. And he started to energize with an enormous surge of interest young and middle-aged people in the Soviet, in the, what was the Russian Empire, before the Soviet, the Russian Empire. Now, there had been the trickling of this in a movement called the BILU. The BILU is an acronym for what? B'nai, not B'nai Yisrael, B'nai Yaakov. Right. Children of Jacob go up and go forward. Go forward. It comes from Yeshayahu. Uh, the second chapter of Yeshayahu, Isaiah. And this became a movement of young Jews who started to go to settle the land of Israel in the early 1870s and 1880s. And they started a settlement. It was called Gadera, G-A-D-E-R-A. It was started, I think, by 13 young Russian Jews, 12 men and one woman. She must have had some heck of a time. <laughs> the fact is the movement didn't, the, didn't succeed. Gadera failed. But it showed the way that you had to take yourself, your destiny in your own hands, you had to go <coughs> to Eretz Israel, and you had to buy the land and farm it. And this is also the beginning of the idea of the pioneer, the chalutz, the model, you know, the hero of Zionist history, the chalutz. In the 1880s, under the inspiration of uh, Pinsker, there grew up another movement called, first there were the societies called Pivatzion, and then Chovavetzion grew out of it. These were a significant movement in terms of numbers. The Chovavetzion started to raise money. In 1884, the Minsk Jewish community in particular gave a considerable sum of rubles. And in the 1880s, they raised hundreds of by the, by the end of the 1880s, they'd raised probably hundreds of thousands of rubles for what? To buy land in the land of Israel. And early settlements that you know about, Rishon, Letzion, all the early settlements, were bought with a combination of Rothschild money and Chovavetzion money. In 1880, 1870-1880, there were about 25,000 Jews in the land of Israel. In 1800, there were about 10,000 Jews in the land of Israel, out of a population of maybe 100,000 or a little more. In 1880, there were 25,000 Jews, and that population grew by, world to, by uh, 1914, World War I, to about 70,000 Jews, right? That's the first Aliyah, the great early Aliyah. And the number of dunum that the Jews owned went from something like 22,000 dunum to 220,000 dunum. There are four dunum roughly to an acre. So it went from 5,500 acres to 50,000 acres, right? It's a small place. Jews owned, started to own significant amounts of land. Just on the land question, so you know, 72% of the land of Israel was owned by the Ottoman state. It was public land. 19% was owned by Arabs and the rest by Jews. So the Jews were a minority, but the majority of land was not Palestinian or Arab. It was owned by the Ottoman state that had inherited it from medieval 
was empty inherited Palestinian uh, territory owned by the state. Now, into this mix of Chovavetzion and Chibatzion come, of course, the, comes, of course, the most important figure, which is Herzl. Now, Herzl is a very interesting character. I think it's fair to say that Herzl is a paradigmatic Luftmensch. You all know the term Luftmensch, a man of the air. The definition of a man of the air is someone who sells something he doesn't own to someone who can't afford to buy it. That's Herzl. Herzl was the paradigmatic Luftmensch. But the fact is, he covered the uh, Dreyfus trial for his newspaper. He was a newspaper man. And he was a paradigmatic, modern, assimilated Jew. He knew no Jewish languages, had no Jewish education, had no Jewish culture. If you would see him in a picture of him, he was very handsome, black hair, beautiful in his tuxedos often, going to the theater, a ladies' man, a dandy. But when he came to the Dreyfus trial, he was shocked by what he saw, because Dreyfus was him, but in a slightly different uniform. Instead of a tuxedo, he was wearing an army outfit, Captain Dreyfus. Dreyfus, though, was also paradigmatic. Namely, he also had run away from his Jewishness. He joined the army, the French army, which was the most non-Jewish thing you could do to become an army, career army person, right? He didn't speak Hebrew. He didn't speak Yiddish. So when Herzl saw Dreyfus in the dock, he said, that's modernity. That's the modern Jew running away from our Jewishness, me by being a newspaper man, him by being an army officer. And when he walked the streets of Paris, he saw that the placard said, not death to Dreyfus, but death to the Jews. And therefore, he drew the right conclusion, namely that this, again, was a collective paranoia, collective obsession that could not be treated by individualistic kinds of solutions. So he decided that he needed an international scheme, an international frame for his activity. Now, it's, it's really an amazing story because he had almost no one who would listen to him in, in a real sense, though everybody opened their door to him. It was a very odd business. First of all, he thought he needed the consent of the Ottoman Empire. They controlled the land of Israel. So he went to... Uh, the Ottoman Empire, to, and he said, let me talk to you. And amazingly, they met with him. Senior administrators of, administrators of the Ottoman Empire met with him, and he told them the following. If you will give the Jews the land of Israel, Jewish bankers will bail out the debt of the Ottoman Empire. And that was an extraordinary claim. Now, you have to know the Ottoman Empire was an enormous debt. It was the worst-run empire that you can think of. It's the only empire, you might say, that declined from its inception. From 1517 to 1917, it's all downhill. There's never a high point in the Ottoman Empire. And in the 19th century, they'd gotten into this huge debt, especially building railroads. But the fact is that he didn't have any money. He didn't have five cents in the bank. He didn't have anybody to support him. But the Pasha said to him, we will let Jews come to the Ottoman Empire, which is the historic position, but they can't settle in the land of Israel. So it doesn't make a lot of headway there. However, he puts him on the map. People know Herzl has met with the administrators, the senior people in the Ottoman Empire. He then goes to see the Kaiser. Amazingly, the Kaiser meets with him. And the Kaiser says to him, you know, maybe I'll look favorably on this. And then somebody whispers in the Kaiser's ear, if you do that, people say you don't want the Jews in Germany, so it'll have bad consequences locally. So Kaiser says, thank you very much. We can't have anything to do with this. 
Then he goes to meet the Tsar, and uh, he meets with Count Pleva, the man I mentioned to you before. But after, at first, as the the Russians thought it would be a good idea. We want to get rid of the Jews. But then they realized that if they encourage Zionism, it will encourage self-assertion by the Jews. They had in mind Pinsker's book, Auto-Emancipation. Self-assertion. Jews will feel they can really do something. It will embolden them. So the Tsar backed away from it. Then he went to the papacy, the papacy, and he met with the cardinal who was in charge of foreign affairs for the papacy, Cardinal Meridale. And this is the, perhaps the most humorous of all the encounters. Meridale said to him, that the Vatican would look favorably on the Zionist movement if all the Jews would first convert. <laughs> so I don't think he got the point, you know, so a little obtuse. Uh, and in the end, when Herzl informed him that was not the idea, he said, we cannot, the Pope actually said, we cannot look favorably on this movement. The only place, uh, and then he went, of course, to see Rothschild, and Rothschild said to him, who are you, Schmendrick? I've been spending millions of dollars, and you don't have a sou in your pocket. Why should I pay any attention to you? Go away. So he had no success with Rothschild either, and with the wealthy Jews uh, who were uh, influential on the continent. The only place, however, he did have success was in Britain, and that proved to be the key to the whole puzzle, right? He met with Joseph Chamberlain, who was the colonial, what was called colonial secretary. Remember, the British had an empire, colonies that they dealt with. And he was able to meet with Lord Rothschild and the London Rothschild. Remember, the Rothschilds were spread all over. Each big city had a Rothschild bank, a, a famous Rothschild. Lord Rothschild also uh, met with Herzl and was favorably impressed, interestingly. London Rothschild had a higher opinion of him. Now, here you have to understand how politics works. The British were interested in doing what? The British were interested in reinforcing their interests in the Middle East. So they needed to replace the Ottoman Empire. They thought if they supported Zionism, that would give them a wedge by which to involve themselves in Middle Eastern politics. That's also why the British became the uh, supporters of the Russian Orthodox Church and so did the Tsar. In order to defend the Russian Orthodox, supposedly, they would have influence in the Middle East, you see. So the British said to him, we like this idea, and we'll help you. So they offered him two things. First of all, they offered him El Arish. El Arish is uh, south of the Gaza Strip in northern Sinai. Have any of you been there? It's a very, very beautiful place. Palm trees, beautiful beach near the canal. Absolutely magnificent place. And they said, come and set up a colony in El Arish. That was the proposal, that Zionism should start in this uh, territory. But of course, it was meaningless because El Arish belonged to the Ottoman Empire still. But it showed an interest. The other thing they did is they offered him Uganda. And he was willing to take Uganda. Because for him, Uganda was as good as Jerusalem. He was an assimilated Jew. The majority of the Zionist movement that came from Eastern Europe said to him, we can't go to Uganda. Jewish people are not interested in Uganda. We don't pray for Uganda. You can only energize the Jews if they go to Eretz Israel. They're not going to, as a movement, make aliyah to Uganda. But what was important about the Uganda and the El Arish effort, though neither uh, bore fruit, was that it involved Britain on the side of the Zionists. It involved Britain in a political intrigue against France, against the European powers, on the side of the, of the Zionists in a funny way. 
It was not clear that this would amount to anything. When Herzl died in 1905, because he literally killed himself for the Jewish people. He was running in every direction. He was you know, going to meetings. It was something like being the scholar in residence for Ari. It was just, it was absolutely, absolutely impossible. And then spent 30 hours finally with Chabad. It was just, you know, it was an impossible situation. So if I live to Shabbos, uh, you know, otherwise you'll do what they did with Herzl. You'll bury me in Eretz Israel. The fact is that he gave rise to a group, and also young Jews in, in England. Now, what Jews in England, interesting, not the wealthiest Jews, except Lord Rothschild, he appealed to younger Jews who, again, were up and coming. Now, they used her Zionism for another reason. They wanted to assert their influence in the British Jewish community. The most famous here was the family of Lord's, what's now Lord Seif that started what company? Marks and Spencer. So the young Jews who started Marks and Spencer became Zi very ardent Zionists in Manchester. And then, of course, Weizmann came to be a professor of chemistry at the University of Manchester in the period before World War I. If you go to Manchester, you can still have someone show you the little house that, uh, that Weizmann lived in. British interests and the creation of this coterie of, uh, say, Jewish activists, Zionist activists in Britain, Again, didn't seem to threaten either the British establishment or the Jewish establishment, but you know, you never know what happens. Jewish history is always a puzzle. You never predict. What happened then was World War I. And in the midst of World War I, the British government, after 15, 1915, beginning of 16, they saw that the war was very difficult. And unlike the Second World War, there was no really clear good guys and bad guys in World War I. The Germans were not monsters in World War I like they would be in World War II. And there was a balance of power between the Allies, the French, and the British, and against the Ottoman Empire and the, the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire. So then the British, and again, this is a curious thing about Jewish history, the British said, how can we turn the tide? Now, there's another book. There's a book I have to mention to you that, unfortunately, is very much uh, alive and well today. It's called, you see here how things come together that you don't uh, imagine would come together. It's called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. In 1916, the London Times did an investigation and said it's a true story. Can you imagine? So you can see how much you can rely on the London Times for your information, like the BBC today in Janine. The fact is that uh, the British government caught a whiff of this, had enough of the knowledge as to think that in some way the Jews really ran the world. Now, that was a bizarre idea in 1916. But that, coupled with their desire to bring America into the war, because America, they knew, was a great power in the future, right? It was starting to be the great power. It had enormous resources of men and material that had not yet started to be exploited for the war. And they said, who runs America? Well, all the Jewish immigrants run America. They didn't know all the Jewish immigrants were selling schmatas on the east side and pickles on Hester Street. They thought the Jews were running the country. And so did Henry Ford, of course, his famous anti-Semitic. He published the Protocols of the Elders of Zion in his newspaper, the Dearborn Independent. He paid for its translation. That's why I always found it ironic. Years ago, some of you may remember when Gerald Green's Holocaust ran on TV. Remember that series? And Ford sponsored it. I didn't know whether they did it because they approved of the Holocaust or they were making tshuva, you know. So the fact is that the anti-Semitism here played a good role. They thought the Jews were running the world. Uh, 
So they said, we'll do two things. We'll get the Jews on our side, and we'll get America, which is in the pocket of the Jews on our side. We'll give Jews some encouragement towards Zionism. What did they do? They called Lord Rothschild, because they wanted to be very careful. They didn't call the leadership of the Zionist movement, Weizmann and others. They called Rothschild, who was safe, he Lord Rothschild. And they said to him, we think it's a good thing that if we win this war, you help us win the war. You're a banker. You control the world markets. If you will help us win the war, we will give you the land of Israel. And this is what's called the Balfour Declaration. The Balfour Declaration says Her Majesty's government looks favorably on the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Now, of course, in the last 100 years, since then, almost 90 years, there's been enormous contention over what it means to establish a Jewish homeland in Palestine. And in the 1930s, of course, the British backed away from that on the eve of World War II in the 36 White Paper and the 39 White Paper. But the fact is that the beginnings of Herzl's efforts combined with all kinds of myths about Jewish power created the Balfour Declaration. And then the result, you know, the result is yiddle by yiddle, we created a Jewish state, right? That the state was created in ways that were altogether unintended. But the Zionist movement, for all of its imperfections, for all of its uh, misjudgments, for all of its missteps, was really heroic. And it had a deep, almost prophetic prescience about Europe. It saw with a kind of clarity the soul of Europe in a way that all the other movements, all the liberals, all the socialists, all the communists, all the reformers, all the Wissenschaft people, all the neo-Orthodox, all the Hasidim, all of whom died in the Shoah, didn't see. So whatever else you say, you see, you have to say Zionism was the great modern achievement, along with American Jewry. Those are the two great outcomes. Yeah. Nero reminds us of Herzl's remark, if you will it, it's not a dream, right? So that this unexpected, right, started from a little, only 3% roughly of all the Jews who emigrated from Eastern Europe went to Israel. 97% went elsewhere. You see, it was a very small movement. And they seemed like hopeless dreamers and absolutely unworldly chalutzim, pioneers. But this movement was the one that really <coughs> provided, at least for European Jewry, uh, a kind of solution that no other possibility except emigration to America and of course, some few other British colonies like Australia, South Africa, uh, Canada uh, provided. So Zionism is a really a remarkable story that you need to understand when you under try to understand the nature of modernity. And that's why one has to uh, be supportive, uh, even if one doesn't always agree. One has to understand what this, uh, this means. Thank you. Thank you.